Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Eric Lures. It's March 29th, 2018, and on this week's show, Canon enters the full-frame mirrorless arena, how MoviePass is affecting indie films, industry-wide Netflix disses, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show from Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And one thing you might have missed last week is me. <laughs> we all did. We all really... Did you get our letters? John looks skeptical. <laughs> did you get our presents and our gifts? I, I, there must be under the tree still. Oh, maybe the wrong yeah. address. No, I did get your gifts. Your gifts were uh, running this ship while I was gone, and I really, really appreciate it. It's such a um, really busy time around here, and it means a lot to me that I know that things were in good hands when I was gone. And also thanks to to everybody out there who actually did send, who actually did take the time (laughs) to send me some nice wishes uh, on Twitter and stuff. It, It means a lot to hear from you guys. I also got to give a shout out to Eleven from Stranger Things for making nosebleeds cool again because I got a lot of those this past week. DMI? It's funny because no one knows what exactly you, what surgery you had. So it's just like, why are you getting nosebleeds? Because I have special powers. That's, that's you had, it was LASIK surgery. And yeah. like, why am I bleeding from my nose? <laughs> I, yeah, I can be a little mysterious about that's it. True. Not everybody needs to know everything about true. everything but they do need to know about my nose, please. <laughs> <laughs> Just go with it. Yep. Hi, folks. Anyway, let's get into some news that I missed while I was a little bit out of commission last week. By the way, I will say one kind of cool thing about having to be so passive is that I did finally catch up on some of the big you know, TV programs and some of the films that I, I didn't get to last year, so that was kind of cool. Oh. I have to say, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, or they just call it Queer Eye now, the reboot, I didn't have high expectations. I didn't really watch the first series, but I wanted to have something that, you know, didn't require much brain power. And it turns out it is the loveliest show, the reboot on Netflix. It's like really heartfelt, sweet. I mean, I cried a couple episodes. It's like wonderfully done. Is it the same cast from the, was it 10 years ago, the original production? It's still a Fab Five, but they're a younger Fab Five. Younger Fab Five. Okay. It just got renewed, I think. Yep, season season. two, baby. Anywho, so speaking of Netflix, easily the two companies we've covered most this past year are the big disruptors to our industry, Netflix and MoviePass. And both of them have some headlines this week. So I'll start with MoviePass. Um, While the rest of the industry is still puzzling over how this company will turn a profit, it has dropped prices yet again with the cheapest package ever now being $6.95 a month for a movie a day. The company's questionable business model doesn't seem to be dissuading other companies from partnering up with them uh, and is what you might call a landmark deal was Mm. announced this week (laughs) (laughs) between MoviePass and Mark Cuban's theater chain, Landmark Cinemas. See what I did there? I think I got more clever this past week. So MoviePass users who buy tickets to Landmark movies will now get to purchase online in advance and reserve seats rather than on site like you have to do with most other theaters that are signed up with MoviePass. Now, Landmark operates 53 theaters in 27 U.S. markets, but what's even more relevant to our listeners is that these theaters, if you don't know, specialize in independent films. So it'll be interesting to see if MoviePass helps boost theatrical attendance for for more indie fare. And on that note, the company has just released its first data about which movie tickets have been selling the best through the app. Unsurprisingly, Black Panther topped the list with over a million tickets sold through MoviePass. But among the top 25 films were also more independent titles like I, Tanya, Lady Bird, and Three Billboards. Of course, these were all Oscar nominees, which surely boosted their overall ticket sales, whereas MoviePass is trying to claim that its influence boosted their ticket sales. But perhaps both are true. Again, it'll be interesting to see how a MoviePass partnership with an independent theater chain will affect indie ticket sales this year. I will, for one, say that I saw both Lady Bird and uh, Three Billboards with my MoviePass, and the fact that I did have a MoviePass made it a lot easier for me to go see it in terms of, like, 
oh, I'll be spending my money on going to see this movie in a theater instead of waiting to see it on a smaller screen. Because generally, I feel like you don't really need to see a lot of these sort of indie dramas. Like character driven. Yeah, on in a big screen environments, you know. But now with MoviePass, if I can do it, I'm definitely going to do it. <laughs> So it actually did influence your theater-going decision. Yeah, it did. Well, it's really interesting, and clearly you're not alone. Each of those films, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they were in the two hundred to 400,000 ticket sale range via MoviePass. So moving on to our Netflix news bites, I'm going to introduce a new section called Haters Gonna Hate. Okay, it's not really. <laughs> that was own theme song. <laughs> it's, it's not really the, the name of the section, although I feel like I kind of want to like do actually have that as a section because there's just so many haters out there. But it does seem like the theme for, for these next few items. So first up, if you have an Apple TV, you know that it gives you the option to purchase movies and shows through iTunes or to watch them through third-party streaming apps like Netflix. So now Google Play, which is for Android users, has adopted a similar function. It used to only allow users to sync and watch titles they rented or purchased from the Google Play store, but now it will offer streaming from 29 partners, pretty much everyone except Netflix. And considering that Android devices lead the global market share, this is not good news for Netflix, its creators, or Android users who want to conveniently view Netflix programs. Yeah, and I, I guess in that way, the way MoviePass has designed a relationship with Landmark, it's interesting how once a company does start to gain more popularity, it then uses that power to kind of forge relationships with other specific companies. Because is Netflix afraid of this, you know, not being included in Google Play's selections or I mean they yeah. should be but yeah. apparently they're in negotiations but I don't know you know it's not publicly disclosed like which party excuse me is holding back but also on Apple TV you can't you can't stream Amazon programs right because those two companies are big rivals is that right you have an no, Apple TV you can. right oh you, you can get yeah, Amazon, Amazon Prime Amazon Prime is on uh, Apple TV as of this year I think oh, okay so the last time I checked it wasn't that's interesting I wonder what you know, what negotiations happened to allow that. And the tough week for Netflix only grew tougher, with arrows being flung the company's way in different directions, as up-and-coming filmmaker Steven Spielberg... Uh, <laughs> a, he's going to come around. We'll have uh, more on, on him uh, later over. in this program, too. He's yeah. really... He's making a name for himself this week, I think. He is, he is. Uh, on a promotional tour for his latest feature, Ready Player One, Spielberg was asked by ITV News if streaming services provided a, quote, challenge to cinema. Although he praised the quality of television currently available on streaming platforms, Spielberg was concerned about feature films commissioned by streaming services that now compete for the awards we typically associate with traditionally distributed, i.e. theatrical, feature films. Once you commit to a television format, you're a TV movie, he said. You certainly, if it's a good show, deserve an Emmy, but not an Oscar. I don't believe that films that are just given token qualifications in a couple of theaters for less than a week should qualify for the Academy Award nomination. Woo, okay. Well, um, of course, Netflix had quite a lot of success with year-end film awards last season. They won the Best Documentary Academy Award for Icarus, and they netted four nominations for Deary's Mudbound. However, those were films that premiered at Sundance and were you know, excuse the layman's terms here, but made to be regularly theatrically distributed movies. You know, they were just subsequently purchased by Netflix and a theatrical awards qualifying run was undoubtedly negotiated and included in the filmmaker's contract. Uh, so that's a little bit interesting as opposed to other films that are literally funded by Netflix with the, I don't know, the sole idea to kind of just stream. There is an interesting perspective of like which films of theirs do get theatrical releases which don't does that display a certain level of confidence in one title versus another um it's just just been a very interesting thing um oj made in america ezra edelman's doc won an academy award and it also won emmys and there's a discussion yeah but and but then after as you might recall then after it won the academy award the academy changed its rules saying that series are not eligible that's where it got confusing because a lot of the, in the nonfiction world, a lot of funding will come from broadcast television and things of that nature. So it's a very unclear line, in my opinion. The waters are muddying, but we certainly know where young upstart Spielberg stands. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he made uh, Duel back in 1971, which <laughs> I guess, you know, if we let's put that in a theater. Let's put it on Broadway and maybe it'll win a Tony Award. You know, mm. I mean, we'll screen it there. 
Um, also, another Netflix news that will affect upcoming titles. This year, any Netflix film that screens at the Cannes Film Festival will be ineligible for the Palme d'Or. That's right. If selected, films presented by Netflix while still being allowed to screen at the French Film Festival will be playing outside of competition with no potential for jury-driven awards. So was it last year's Cannes entries, The Meyerowitz Stories in Okja, that finally broke the camel's back? Um, Cannes did get a bunch of flack for including those two Netflix properties in competition last year. And so they're caving in and saying... You know, kind of like, come for the premiere, but there's no need to stick around for the award ceremony. Uh, that's not a direct <laughs> quote. That's just me kind of breaking it down for you. Uh, so while when Cannes announces their lineup on, I believe, April 12th, there could be Netflix titles in there, but they will not be competing for the Palme d'Or. They'll be out of competition, which, again, kind of feels like a maybe not so subtle demotion uh, slash slap in the face. Yeah, it's a little French slap. And those are the worst kind, I've heard. Have you ever seen Before Sunrise? There's at least three of them. (laughs) Speaking of Cannes, the festival, which takes place in May, but as Eric said, will announce its lineup on the 12th, has made some other changes this year. And one is pretty significant and also sort of related to this, like, digital backlash that it seems like Netflix is facing from some of the more traditional um, film industry folks. So for as long as any reporter who's working now has been covering the festival, it's had a very specific way of presenting press screenings and kind of different from other festivals. So for decades, press would watch each evening's competition film at a single 8.30 a.m. screening that morning, which, by the way, any of you who've been to festivals partying late at night, that's that's like a little bit of a rough time slot. I'm starting to understand why some of those movies get booed by the press. Anyway... The competition films screen in the morning at 8.30 a.m. And then in the evening, there's a big gala, red carpet, and the official premiere. So this year, they're going to start having press watch films at the same time as the regular gala audiences in a smaller theater nearby. And this might not seem like a huge deal, but in the culture of Cannes, it's major. And the reason why is kind of an interesting sign of the times. The festival organizers claim that they're doing this, like, basically to prevent this like rash of instant public press reactions via platforms like Twitter before the film has even officially premiered. And the question I have is whether or not this move is good or bad for those premiering filmmakers. I'm wondering what you guys think. Uh, I always feel that it is good to kind of have the first public uh, opinions come out once that first screening has taken place. Uh, You almost don't want to see a film killed before even its first screening has happened. Now, there are usually some pretty strict embargoes on these things as well, but maybe that's not included here, or maybe there's kind of a shift. I think basically the festival was saying that those embargoes were being ignored. Like Uh, now that it used to be that you couldn't get your reaction out instantly, even if you wanted to. Now a whole review could be published before, you know, in the time between the morning screening and the uh, evening, the morning press screening and the evening screening. So can the can organizers felt like, this was getting way out of control. The press was behaving badly, and this is kind of their little French slap. Yeah. To have the public reaction rate decided before your world premiere screening almost feels a little, I don't know. Well, on the other hand, I'm sure it can work the other way, where if that, that response is positive, it starts the sort of big wave of anticipation of the film. I don't know. For, like, six hours <laughs> Until the screening, the premiere screening, kind of. But I think especially now that we've been on the on the press side, we see how those things snowball. Like even when we're on the ground at a festival, if you weren't necessarily planning on seeing something as press, but then suddenly everyone's talking about it there, like then you go, and it, it might result in more press. But on the flip side, like I can't even imagine being like in the position where you've got a film, you know, that you've worked so hard on and it's premiering at the world's premier film festival. By premiere, I mean, you know, top mm-hmm. premiering at premiere. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, you you want to get that confidence up to walk the red carpet, but then <laughs> that morning your film was trashed. I don't know. That seems really tough. Maybe just be stricter with embargoes if they can. We should have such a strict embargo that you can't even speak about the movie for at least six hours after you watch (laughs) it. Anybody ask for your opinion on it, you just have to ignore them. Interesting. Anyway, you know, we'll see kind of how, like, if this actually affects the press coverage of Cannes or if the rest of us just, you know, as John sort of hinted at, like, just don't even notice. 
And now I'd like to welcome Charles Hain for this week's Gear News. Welcome back, Liz. So nice to see you. Uh, So first up in Gear News this week, the full-frame cinema market heats up even further as Canon has entered the race with the new C700FF for full-frame. So honestly, the original C700 was kind of an interesting beast since it was kind of just like a C300 Mark II with more power options. And yes, power options are important. You need power for accessories like wireless and uh, recorders and all that stuff. So, like, I'm not saying that it wasn't great, but I'm saying the C700 was a bit of a, like, mystery to me. But now the C700 makes way more sense because the C700 full frame is, like, a way different sensor than the C300. It's, like, a major step forward. And if you already own a C700, you can upgrade to the C700FF for a fee So Canon isn't leaving their previous purchasers in the dust. They're saying, hey, you already have a C700. You can bump it up to the C700 full frame. So this really puts the camera in a place all its own in Canon's lineup. And Canon claims that this is their first real attempt at becoming the A camera for, like, high-end production. So along with the full-frame sensor, they've released a bunch of new uh, HDR monitors, a new 20-millimeter full-frame Cine Prime, And let's be honest, since this is Canon, we can expect a lot more full-frame cinema glass from them. Weirdly, they've started their full-frame mirrorless at the top. Because they have full-frame, I mean, the 5D is a full-frame mirrored DSLR. And after Sony really had such big hits with, like, the Alpha 9, which is a full-frame mirrorless, which is super popular, I think everybody was sort of expecting, like, a $3,000, like, still, but it also does video camera from Canon. And they haven't really come out with that yet so their first big full frame mirrorless option is all the way at the top which is kind of an interesting choice for canon but one i can totally respect do you think that this camera will actually be competitive with other cinema cameras well so this puts canon in the club with like sony airy and red in terms of having like full frame cinema cameras i don't think it's going to be super competitive with Aerie for the, like, top 0.1% competing at the, uh, for the Academy Awards, just because Aerie has such a lockdown in that market. But do I think we're going to start to see some TV shows, even TV shows we really like, who are like, oh, Canon full frame? Yeah. Uh, honestly, I think the biggest threat that this faces is as a threat to the Varicam. Because, like, the Varicam uh-huh. has been super popular in television. Master of None was Varicam. The David Simon Show, The Deuce, was Varicam because it delivered true 4K. So networks that wanted true 4K were really excited. But the Varicam is super 35. So now that full frame is really heating up, I don't think they're going to go head-to-head against Monstro and Alexa, although I think they could. Um But I think that they are really going to go. I think you're going to start to see some TV shows and like big A-list TV shows that are C700 full frame, which I think is going to be a really good place for them. Interesting. There's frankly more of that work. Right. And then they'll end up selling a lot of lenses and a lot of accessories. So I can totally understand their strategy. But I also like I'm not a Canon shooter, but if I were a Canon shooter, I'd be really annoyed that they still don't have like a full frame mirrorless $3,500 competitor for the Alpha 9. Um, I, I could see people grumbling about that. But as mostly a cine shooter, I'm really excited. I think this is like the perfect evolution of the C700. Up next uh, is a major refresh to Frame.io. So if you don't use Frame.io, it's a really great tool to get a variety of clients to give notes and feedback in a coherent, organized fashion. What's usually happened without tools like Frame.io is you send out like a Vimeo link with a password and you get all these notes and they're convoluted and it's hard to tell who meant what and it's hard to keep track of what the time code means and, it you know, are they talking about the burn-in or the runtime and there's no way to tag. So uh, if you are still doing that, you should look at some tool like Frame.io or one of its competitors. But... You should definitely look at the new release of Frame.io. They came out with a whole bunch of really interesting upgrades. One thing I appreciate, they've really worked on the back end to make uploads faster. So they're claiming five times faster than Dropbox. And if you've ever been waiting on an upload to something like Dropbox or Vimeo, you've, you've probably noticed that your personal internet's usually not what's slowing it down. If you look at like the upload speed on Dropbox, it's like 1,200 kilobits a second or something. And then you run a speed test and you're like, I have 100 megabits a second. So I have way faster internet than Dropbox. So it's the server on Dropbox and the code on Dropbox that's slowing it down. 
So Frame.io has really worked on that because obviously when you're in a situation where you're trying to get a feature up for notes or an episode of TV up for notes, and frankly, when you have to do the upload and check it before you can go home, the ability to do that upload faster and then like leave and make it to dinner uh, will be huge. And I think a lot of assistants will totally appreciate uh, that being sped up. They've also tweaked some of their commenting tools. It's now range-based, so you can select like a range, which frankly I think all comments should be because it's rare I ever have a note on like an individual frame. It's usually like four shots where the monster looks fake or like this shot's too dark. So I really like that. They also have PDF and still image review tools. I'm not sure if those are going to be interesting. I mean, I think it was probably easy for them to add. I'm having trouble imagining them in my workflow, but maybe it'll be one of those things that will surprise us. The thing I desperately want is I really want a ticking clock where you can tell a client, you have 24 hours to give notes, and there's a big ticking clock on the screen telling them how (laughs) long they have to give notes. I don't think Frame.io will ever do that. I don't think anyone will ever do that. But Jesus, it would be so great if clients had a sense of like, oh, if I give notes two weeks later, it's really a dick move. Um, You hear that, clients? Mm, The dick move clock. Do we have clients listening? We probably have makers listening, but I I bet we have clients who listen. Yeah. Some makers are clients, too. So You're right. I've been both right. sides of the table. Although when I am a client, I try and give notes pretty quick. Um, and then finally, our last news this week is, a, is actually not a full-frame sensor, which is most of the news lately. It's a Super 35-millimeter sensor. So full-frame is hot, but Super 35 is still, like, most of what people shoot most of the time. And it's what most of our Cine lenses are customized for. And RED has released to the public a new Super 35mm sensor called the Gemini. It was originally announced a few months ago, but in the original announcement, they had only made six bodies. And they had an unnamed space-based client, which could only be Elon Musk or uh, space or uh, Jeff Bezos. Or it could be NASA, but NASA has a long-term Canon contract. And, or the um, man on the moon. Or the man in the moon. Who needs to make movies in the moon? And it's been doing it for a really long time. <laughs> um, and they were all already sold out before it was announced, so it wasn't that exciting for the rest of us. However, Red has now improved on it and are releasing it to the public. So the Gemini sensor is now available to the rest of us. They've also improved it in a huge way. So originally the Gemini sensor was only 3200 ISO, and it wasn't going to be great in like super bright situations. The exterior, you're going to need a lot of ND, which means you need NDIR because it's digital, and those are more expensive. Now they've made it a dual sensor ISO, a dual ISO sensor, the same way the Varicam is, where you can switch it between an 800 mode and a 3200 mode depending upon your lighting situation. Which is funny because now the Gemini, the twins, makes way more sense as a name than it did originally when it was probably just named after the Gemini space program. So Mm. it's either a lucky accident or they always knew they were going to do that. They probably always knew they were going to do that, let's be honest. Um, The other fun thing about this is, unlike a lot of other red Super 35-millimeter-sized sensors, this is actually 18 millimeters tall which means it's tall enough that you can use it comfortably with traditional anamorphics, which is great because anamorphics are usually, they usually don't open as wide, right? You, you don't see a lot of 1.4 anamorphics. Panavision has some 1.4 anamorphics, but they're really soft. Usually they open to like a 2 or a 2.8, and usually even then you want to stop it down to like a 4 to get best performance. So it's like a really great teaming of like an anamorphic and a really fast sensor because the faster sensor means balances out nicely for the slower stop of the lens. So I think that's a really nice little design feature of this sensor. And I think uh, it's going to be really exciting that the rest of us can now get our hands on Gemini cameras. And uh, they have test footage up online, all of which is shot with the Atlas Anamorphics, which we're really excited to see rolling out further. And uh, it looks really beautiful. Awesome, Charles. And we've got an Ask No Film School question for you, too. So... Isaac Elliott wrote in to say that he's looking for a small, lightweight camera, about C100 size, that can record ProRes internally, and he's wondering if that even exists. Isaac, the answer is not really. Um, Unfortunately, that's not really quite a thing yet, although there's an exception that we'll talk about in a second. But what you're probably going to end up doing, and I say this because this is what almost everybody else in your situation does, is you're probably going to buy something, some sort of monitor recorder device like the Atomos Shogun Inferno, the Pix 270i, the Odyssey 7Q, one of those devices. So these are monitors that allow you to view your image larger than you could on the tiny little monitor on something like a C100, 
but it also lets you mount up an SSD and record ProRes straight to a hard drive in the device. So they're great little combo units. The best part is that they've got some legs in terms of ownership. So for instance, like one of the most common scenarios, I know a couple DPs with this, own like an A7S2 and a Pix, right? Super common combo. They're getting ProRes straight to camera. The whole thing set them back like $3,500. However, the A7 III has come out, and I think we can all reasonably assume there will be an A7S III soon. It'll probably be even better in low light. And so this DP I know who has this combo is going to be able to sell the A7S II body, get an A7S III body, but it's still going to work with the Pix 270i. It's still going to work with whatever lenses bought. So these monitor recorders tend to have a little bit of legs. Like, for instance, if you'd bought an Atomos Shogun Inferno two years ago, I think it came out. A year later, the EVA-1 came out, which has all sorts of functionality in the Shogun Inferno that wasn't available at launch. Especially because these people who make the monitor recorders, Pix, uh, which is actually a device from Sound Devices, um, Odyssey, uh, Atomos, they are, uh, they're all treating these as really upgradable devices. So you can upgrade the firmware and unlock new features. So when the Shogun Inferno came out, you couldn't do 5.7K RAW because there wasn't really a camera that did it. But now with the EVA-1... They've added a new firmware update for the Shogun Inferno. If it's not out now, it'll be out soon. That lets you have 7K RAW out of that camera. So even though, yes, it's a little annoying to spend another 1500 bucks or two grand on top of your camera to get one of these things, they tend to have a little bit of a life to them. So for your needs, combining something like the A7S II, a GH5S, or a Fuji X-H1 with a good monitor recorder is going to give you like native ProRes recording and also the small camera body you're looking for. And like the C200 works with these as well if you want to upgrade to something a little bit more robust from Canon or, again, the EVA-1. Um, if you want direct internal ProRes recording without going to an external box, you're looking at the Blackmagic Ursa Mini Pro, the Alexa Mini, RED cameras. These are all going to be a little bit physically larger than that C100 you've been talking about. There is an exception, which is the Blackmagic Pocket Camera which does do ProRes internally. It's a thousand bucks. It's very small. It's beloved by many. It's way smaller than the C100. But there's going to be limits to that platform. The Pocket, it's a great camera. I mean, they used it on Spider-Man, uh, the most recent one shot by uh, Totino. But it's not like you're going to get frustrated if you want to use it as your only camera for everything. Audio in and out are kind of annoying. Video in and out are kind of annoying. Accessories are kind of an, It's like... It has a very specific use, and then a lot of other things you're going to get frustrated by. So depending upon your application, I think you're probably going to be better off with like a GH5S and a Shogun Inferno or something in that party. Good luck. That was one of those uh, seemingly simple questions with a complicated answer, which I always appreciate you uh, providing for us, Charles. I hope I don't make the answers too complicated. If there was, I mean, I guess my simple answer could have been like, no, there is not. And then no, but that's not really my point. It's not that you're <laughs> making know, the I'm answers just... complicated. It's that people want easy solutions in this industry. And sometimes, you know, there are workarounds until those easy solutions exist. Well, it's also one of those things, like for me, when the monitor recorders first came out, I, I was a skeptic. I was like, really? Why don't you just upgrade to a camera that does it? But then I started to see a lot of people doing it, and I was like, oh, $2,000 camera, $2,000 monitor recorder is still $4,000, which is way cheaper than an Alexa Mini, way cheaper than an EVA-1, way cheaper than a C200. And then I was like, oh, and you get to keep it as new cameras come out. Now, obviously, an HD monitor recorder usually doesn't upgrade well to 4K, but if you've got one of the top-end 4K ones, they tend to have a little legs as the new additions come out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're definitely not to the point yet where, like, your random $2,000 camera has the horsepower to write ProRes. Well, thanks for the question, Isaac. Good luck, and thank you again, Charles. My pleasure. See you guys all on the other side of NAB. Oh, my goodness. And now for some indie films that you can check out this week. One of the best talks I went to at South by Southwest last year was with the beloved puppeteer and film director Frank Oz, and he was there for a premiere of a documentary called Muppet Guys Talking, which is finally available for the world to watch. Interestingly, though, it's currently only available on the website MuppetGuysTalking.com. 
a newsletter from the team said that basically they've never done things in the traditional way from the beginning of their shows, and they reimagined what a documentary could be and how it could be distributed. So good for them. They're just like going direct to consumer, and they have enough sort of brand recognition to do so. Um, the movie itself is kind of explained in the title. It's basically a filmed conversation between five of the original Muppet performers talking about their experiences on the shows and working with Jim Henson, along with some cool behind-the-scenes footage. It's really for Muppets fans, but also anyone, I think any one of us, who's fascinated or inspired by the creative processes behind really successful projects. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant on April 5th is The Killing of a Sacred Deer. This is Yorgos Lanthimos' latest film, and it's another sterling entry into the Greek New Wave canon. And like his previous films, The Lobster and Dogtooth, it's eerily hard to stomach. He's made more films, but those are, I think, his most famous. The film stars Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, and an undeniably creepy Barry Keoghan. I think that's how you say his name. It's Irish. He's the guy from Dunkirk, but he's really good in this movie. The plot follows Farrell's character, a surgeon named Stephen, who's forced to make an unthinkable sacrifice after the teenage boy of a patient whose surgery he botched reveals he has supernatural powers that may put Stephen's family in danger. This one makes it into my top tens of 2017 for sure. His movies do sound so weird. I've never seen any of them. I got to get on that. Yeah, they're awesome. Dogtooth is yeah, pretty incredible. and Very qu- quotable movies, too. Yeah. And coming to Netflix on Friday is a Netflix original movie called First Match by first-time feature director Olivia Newman. It's an engrossing drama shot here in Brooklyn's notoriously tough Brownsville neighborhood about a teenage girl called Mo who joins the boys' wrestling team at her school as a way to try to reconnect with her dad, who's a former champion wrestler who's recently gotten out of jail. So Mo is expertly portrayed by... Elvira Emanuel, who's one of those new actors that you see and you immediately know that they're going to have a big future. Like it's it was just like, wow, who is this woman? I didn't know what to expect from this film. I knew the director, Olivia, a little bit from Film Fatals, and I knew that she's a lovely person, but I'm not like generally into sports dramas. And I can also be a little skeptical, um, as some of you have heard, you know, in my other reporting about white filmmakers telling African-American stories and this entire cast is African-American. But I have to say that I loved the story and it was really beautifully crafted, especially for a lower budget feature. Um, I actually interviewed a whole group from the film for next Monday's podcast, which I will talk about a little later in the show. But meanwhile, I highly recommend that you watch it over the weekend. And coming out in theaters tonight, actually, is this little uh, indie movie uh, from a filmmaker we were talking about earlier. George uh, Lucas. No, oh. actually a, a good friend of George Lucas, oh. though. Uh, not They didn't, you know, they weren't without their problems, but they're, they're good friends. Ready Player One is coming out. Uh, it premiered at South by Southwest, along with a lot of other fellow indies, um, two weeks ago to <laughs> surprisingly good reviews. The premiere screening was so huge that it actually pushed back the midnight film start time that night so that press could make their way from the theater it was playing at to catch the beginning of whatever they were scheduled to see. The film is, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg, who, uh, you know, we're being sarcastic. He's He's been around for a long time. Um, <laughs> and it's based on the book by Ernest Cline. True to Spielberg's roots, it features some full-blast nostalgia, many references to movies that he's actually made in the past himself. In a surprise introduction to the premiere in Austin, Spielberg came out onto the stage and assured fans that, quote, this is not a film that we've made. This is, I promise you, a movie. But not a Netflix movie. Not no. a TV movie. Not a TV movie. He was clear about that. So the I, sin- Wait, I don't actually understand that statement. It's not a film. It's a movie? I think that he's just trying to, like, this is a fun distance himself from, yeah, like, pretentiousness. He should have come out and said, this is not the post. All right, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think he's just trying to say like this is a a good popcorn flick, essentially. I see. Well, he'll find his voice. You know, he's just starting out. Give it time. So the synopsis is as follows: When the creator of a virtual reality world called the Oasis dies, he releases a video in which he challenges all Oasis users to find his Easter egg, which will give the finder his fortune. So it sounds like a little bit of a knockoff of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonka, but. Maybe we'll see Willy Wonka. I mean, who knows? It seems like there's a lot of cultural references in here. So maybe we'll get uh, Johnny Depp and Gene Wilder back together. Ooh. In this? Oh, jeez. I don't think that actually happens. <laughs> <happens. laughs> 
we had this on our most anticipated of 2018 list, and uh, and now here it is. So it should be a fun time. And now for some upcoming deadlines and grant opportunities. Due on April 1st is the IDA Enterprise Doc Fund, which is for production grants of up to $100,000. The IDA Enterprise Documentary Fund provides production funds to feature-length documentary films that take on in-depth explorations of original, contemporary stories and integrate journalistic practice into the filmmaking process. In addition to providing funds, grantees will receive additional resources and expertise tailored to the needs of their project. Inclusion and diversity, both in terms of the filmmaking team and the subject matter, are a priority of the fund. And on April 4th, the deadline for the Sundance Film, Music, and Sound Design Lab hits. It sounds like a really cool opportunity. In recognition of the intermingling between narrative and documentary forms, the 2018 Film, Music, and Sound Design Lab brings the two together in a multidisciplinary program for the first time, aiming to benefit artists through cross-pollination. Oddly sexual. (laughs) Composers will apply to the program as a whole and will then be assigned either a fiction or documentary project to work on during the lab. And the coolest part is that the lab, which will take place in July, is at the Skywalker Sound Complex, I guess you could call it, in Marin County, California, which is where I'm from. It's part of Sundance Institute's film music program, which gives composers and directors firsthand experience with a collaborative process to nurture the development of music and film. I don't know if you guys remember, but I did a podcast back in the fall about what is a film fellowship and why should you do one with three filmmakers who'd been through several of these labs and fellowship programs. One of them actually was a podcast guest on her own, Sabah Folian, who was here for Whose Streets. Um, And then she rejoined the podcast for this group conversation, and she had done this this Sundance Film Music and Sound Design Lab, so that was the first time I heard about it. She talks a little bit about it on that episode, and it sounds amazing. It's like, especially if you're sort of an under-resourced, starting out indie filmmaker, suddenly you get access to the Skywalker you know, labs and all of this, like the state of the art tools, every instrument, every, everything you could possibly want to design the sound for your movie. That sounds like just the super coolest experience. I would just like to like sit in there once and just observe. I've seen like some EPK videos over the years that, you know, of production, post-production taking place there. And I just want to kind of be a fly on the wall for a day, not have a project, just kind of be there and observe in the background. So much of George Lucas's um, filmmaking philosophy comes from sound editing, too. Like, his whole uh, start in film, he loved editing, went to school with Walter Murch, who was a sound editor, and then they got together, you know, made THX, which later (laughs) became the name of his sound company, and uh, then American Graffiti, which is he described as a musical, um, because it's really just all about the interplay of sound and images and lucas i'm I'm reading this book on him so this is how i know this stuff but lucas just loved editing kind of above all else and sound was just a huge way into that uh uh what would you call it field or (laughs) yeah that discipline for him i never knew that walter merch started out as a sound editor Mm -hmm. wow yeah that's so interesting because he's so known for his visual like visual reference points. Wow, cool. And now onto festival deadlines. The Heartland Film Festival has a deadline on March 31st. It's the early bird deadline. This festival takes place in Indianapolis, Indiana from October 12th to the 22nd. They have cash prizes ranging from $500 to $25,000 per prize. The grand prize winners for both Best Narrative Feature and Documentary Feature are the winners that uh, get the $25,000 prize. Last year, they awarded a combined $110,000 in cash prizes, and they've bestowed more than $3.1 million to independent filmmakers since 1992, which is the largest total amount awarded by any film festival in North America. Wow, who knew? It's an Academy Award qualifying festival in the short films category, so I imagine that covers every denomination of short. It's also important to note that their selection process guarantees that your film is watched in full by at least three screening team members, and then you get feedback after the uh, either refusal or acceptance of your film. And then on March 31st as well, the deadline for the St. Louis International Film Festival happens. This is the early bird deadline, and of course it takes place in St. Louis, Missouri from November 1st to November 11th, 2018. 
SLIF is an Academy-sanctioned qualifying festival for both narrative and documentary short subjects. And the festival is especially concerned with providing filmgoers the opportunity to see work that would otherwise never screen in St. Louis. So... <laughs> I love that's it. A, I want to go to SLIF. I mean, that sounds... I'm that's just, a great anger. I'm just curious about what... Uh, <laughs> What is like a forbidden film in St. Louis right now? <laughs> I don't think it's about <laughs> forbidden as much as they don't get there. They don't they have don't, a lot yeah. of independent the art cinema. House, uh, I would love to see a, a forbidden St. Louis it's, it's film. It's underground band films that could never play St. Louis. <laughs> Come for one week, just like destroy the entire city. That's actually a surprisingly cool town. I don't know if you guys have I've ever been, been there. I liked it yeah. a lot. Yeah, I did a cool cross country drive I'm a saying, while back. The day after Halloween, let's all go. Okay, I think we should do it. <laughs> nice job, St. Louis. You're cool people. And moving on to my favorite part of the show, weekly words of wisdom. So since I've been out, I haven't been um, putting too much up on the site, but I did want to revisit an awesome panel that I went to at South by Southwest and wrote up um, on the site. The, the post is called, Your Job is to Protect the Show and More Tips from Top TV Editors. So I went, you know, sometimes panels at South by Southwest aren't a great use of your time. But when the panelists are truly experienced, it can be just like chock full of insights. And this one was one of those examples. It was a panel with three TV editors. So uh, editors from Breaking Bad, The Deadliest Catch, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend all three of which are really different types of shows. So it's kind of cool to you know hear about their different editing processes. Um, but there were some things that they had in common. One, it's just sort of a positive note for any of you entering the industry and trying to move to LA. We often hear like questions, should I move to LA? If you have some editing skills and you want to break in in LA, because there's this huge you know resurgence of TV and glut of TV being made, Apparently, there's a lot of assistant editing work. So that's just like a little a little tip for you all. But when, when they talked about, you know, the actual craft of editing and what your job really is, it was a particularly interesting part of the conversation. Um, the guy who edits Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, his name is Kabir Akhtar, and he also is one of the producers on the show, and he's been in the industry a long time, like 20 years. And he was sort of talking about how everyone misunderstands what an editor does and he's you know this is the kind of thing we've also talked about in terms of cameras where we say it's not really about the camera it's what you do with with that tool and it's sort of the same he was talking about you know it's not like the gig isn't running a machine it isn't knowing avid uh, or premiere whatever and i thought he was going to say it's about storytelling which is what another you know one of his co-panelists said but what he said is that at the heart of it of editing is really um at least professionally is really managing people's psychology he's like your job is to protect the show he said you have to stand up for weird network interference and writing mistakes you spend a lot of time on the show and you care about it so what he's basically referring to is on these shows, there might be like several directors over the course of a series. It's not like one director is assigned to an entire season because the shows shoot simultaneously. There's all these different moving parts. Different episodes might have different writers, different directors. So the editor is the only consistent person. They're the one that really understands the entire storyline of the show, that really understands the look and feel of the show, that you know understands what needs to happen and probably knows the producers the best. So like your job as editors, you know, again, to protect the show and sort of like deal with all these different personalities who are giving you feedback when you ultimately know like what the show needs to be, which I thought was really interesting. And he was saying to that end that he hopes basically that editors, you know, you as an up and coming editor can learn to say, great, we totally will do your idea and then basically do it in a way that doesn't work. That's like his strategy. It's a little passive aggressive, but it's, you know, he's saying like his strategy for for doing what he said needs to be done to protect the show is to show people their ideas. Like instead of just saying no, you know, you go ahead and you, you put their idea together, but you sort of like do it in a <laughs> way that you know is not awful. going to be very good. And ultimately they'll end up going with your idea. I don't know that that's, you know, the best advice to just manipulate people, but I thought it was an interesting take on the whole, you know, on the whole craft. Yeah, you don't really think of 
in my opinion, editors as the ones taking the most ownership and like editor as a tour or the authoritative voice on a production. So it's kind of cool. It's always fascinating to watch certain shows that do switch directors each episode, like you say. And it's like, well, who does remain the constant force, the constant voice? I've, I've actually never thought of it as the editor before. So that's kind of opens up my eyes in a way. That's that's how I felt. And I think that's one way that television differs from movies as well. Because, you know, it, if it were a single property, a single movie, the director would be working much more closely with the editor in theory, um, but when it's a TV show, it's, it's a pretty different thing. Yeah. I love my editor, Tom. Hey, we love, Tom. We love you, Tom. Love you, man. We'll see you soon. And I would also say that strategy works. <laughs> <laughs> because he, As the director. I feel like uh, another big thing for editors uh, to have a, a huge trait is patience. And, oh my um, God! Yes, I think mostly with the director. Um, he shows me things like he'll he'll try to say that it doesn't work, and then I'll be like, "No, it'll work." And then he shows me that it doesn't work, and then I'm like, "You're right, it doesn't work." And that's <laughs> basically, I guess, what this guy is talking about. So, and I think you're really right too that patience is a huge quality. I mean, think about documentary editors and the hundreds or thousands of hours of footage they have to sift through. To find their story, my God. But I also mean in terms of like, you don't want to punch your director in the face. Yeah, <laughs> because no. yeah, I think it's it's like there's several several reasons why being a patient person with a sort of calm demeanor is like really an asset for editing. Love you, Tom. Good job, Tom. But can you make a shorter cut, please? Yeah, it's how's uh, that going? We're at sixteen and a half, so oh yeah, great! It's down from twenty five, and we're Ooh. feeling good. Oh my god, I can't wait to see it. We're talking about the guy, John Fusco's fictional Not short. Not Tom the guy. Not Tom the well, guy. We were talking about Tom. Tom's the man. Tom's the man. Ooh. This is the guy. <laughs> Tom's the man. John's the guy. The short is called the boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there is a boy in the guy. Oh god. Okay, now I'm confused. <laughs> Tom, cut this down a little bit more, please. I, I need to know what's happening. Uh, I'm the girl, and I have more to say. <laughs> hey, I'm an editor. Oh. You're a podcast editor. Yeah. I just realized that. <laughs> as he was updating his LinkedIn profile as we were doing this on the air. Anyway, um, as you could probably tell from some of our headlines this week, it's the start of an almost overwhelming spring festival season. When I started to look at the calendar, I was like, holy shit, like... There's just festival on top of festival on top of festival. Of course, we can't cover them all, but we are going to be bringing you lots of highlights over the next several weeks. But if you're in New York, you can get in the mood by checking out New Directors New Films, which opened last night and it runs through April 8th. The screening series, I was surprised to learn, is in its 47th year. And it has kind of an amazing track record of highlighting the most exciting new visionaries in cinema. So a lot of directors that you've heard of um, you know, had some of their early films play there. We'll be covering a few of this year's directors on the site, so keep an eye out for those interviews. Are you you seeing anything, Eric? Where does uh, that take place, first of all? Uh, it's Lincoln Center. Lincoln, Lincoln Center, Center and uh, Same MoMA. place as the... Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Oh, so no, the, it's MoMA. It's a combined, right. I think it's a like com- combined collaboration between MoMA and the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Which is also the host of the New York uh, Film Festival. Yeah. There, yeah, I haven't, I've only seen um, Hale County, which played at Sundance, uh, and there are a few more I'm interested in seeing. I know, Liz, you saw the MIA documentary? Oh, yeah, that's right. right? The, the, Stephen Loveridge's um, MIA documentary is playing at New Directors and New Films. Yeah. So a couple of the films played at Sundance, but a lot of them are premieres. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think that's how Scorsese got his start, was at New Directors and New Films. Thanks, and Spike, Spike, Lee. Spike Lee had a short mm-hmm. there, um, the Barbershop one. Then I heard they cut heads, I think is the title. Barbershop 2? No, no, yeah, yeah, Tim's story. Uh, yeah, back in like 86. It's actually kind of cool. We should like look back on some of those directors that played there and kind of, it's fun to kind of follow those careers and see who started where. Yeah, we'll bring you some of that news next week. Yes. As I mentioned earlier, uh, on next Monday's podcast, I have an amazing group from the Netflix original movie First Match that I mentioned earlier. Um, this was my favorite interview out of South by Southwest. So we, ha- we have writer-director Olivia Newman, along with two of the film's producers, its DP and its editor. Um, and by the way, one of those producers has a really um, pretty impressive track record. He worked on I, Tanya. He was a co-producer of the three Hunger Games films. So he was sort of like the big name that came on to help this um, upstart crew get the film made. Um, but our conversation, we, we talk about how they took their film from a short all the way through a Netflix feature, 
Um, and it's kind of fun because it takes a, kind of a similar path to our own Ryan Koo's movie. Um, that the, actually they know each other. The filmmakers they're both based in New York. They both made. Um, high school sports-based drama films. They both were at some of the IFP and Sundance Labs and eventually got their first uh, independent feature made from a short into a Netflix original. So um, if you've started to listen to our new podcast series, Amateur, which is a 10-part series about how Ryan made his film, this is kind of a condensed version in one episode of another you know, very independent Netflix original feature um, getting made out of New York. And we talk about some really interesting ways that they stretch their production dollars and how they made a sports movie inside a personal narrative instead of what's often the other way around, where it's a sports movie first and then a personal story. So, um, yeah, it should be a really great one on Monday. And uh, I also want to wish everyone for this weekend, anyone who's celebrating a happy Easter and a happy Passover, they don't always fall on the same weekend, so it's cool that it's east over. And it's uh, April Fool's Day, Past too, Easter. right? On Easter, I guess. Are you trying to say this that year. people who celebrate these holidays no, are I, foolish? I just, I, I'm just very excited for a Jesus, Jesus Christ Superstar Live with John Legend. Oh, yeah. Sunday night. Yeah. Sarah Bareilles as Mary Magdalene. That's a reason to celebrate. I'm gonna, Sunday night. I'll be watching. <laughs> but seriously, have a really happy weekend, everyone. And let's all just pray that it's freaking warmer next week. Meanwhile, there's the weather. <laughs> we knew we couldn't get through the podcast without one mention of the weather. It just came at the very end. Yeah, I'm like secretly an old man. It's like weather or directions. Um, anyhow, so as always, you can read everything that we uh, talked about on this week's show. We'll, we'll put links in this week's podcast post at nofilmschool.com where you can also find daily new original articles about everything that's happening in the film world. Um and, of course, uh, much about the craft of filmmaking. Meanwhile, um, if you want all of this great podcast content, look for the No Film School podcast on iTunes or wherever get you get your podcasts. If you are on iTunes, uh, rating us and writing those reviews really does help out. So we appreciate it when we hear from you in that way. And we also like to hear from you on Twitter, sort of, only if you're nice. That's true. And all reviews of our podcast are embargoed until at least 12 months after the episode goes up. So just keep that in mind. Can just contacted us and said they created a very strict guideline for our podcast. And if you mess it up, Eric's going to give you a French <laughs> slap. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hashtag French slap. Do it. So anyway, if you're going to behave, please <laughs> tweet at me at Liz Film. I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. We're all at No Film School. Happy Easter. Happy Passover. Happy weekend. See you next week. <laughs>